0: We are in the third week of our misunderstanding series where we're tracking our our, making our way through the middle section of Mark's gospel as we learn from Jesus about his way that tonight we pick up in Mark chapter 8 verse 32 if you have your Bible you can turn with me to Mark chapter 8 verse 32. Well, some years ago, it was summertime. I was working at the time in student ministry. And it was a busy time of year, and as many often do, we had a handful of summer ministry interns. And they had just begun. In fact, we were having an end-of-school-year party, and they were beginning their internship for the summer. We were just getting to know each other. They figuring out what I needed from them, and me figuring out how to best communicate to them what we needed them to do, and so on one particular afternoon, they had been helping work around the church, and it was time for them to go on, uh, well, their first mission. And don't get too excited when I say the word mission. Um, A mission for summer interns is them doing what they do best, which is uh, three adolescents making a trip to Walmart (laughs) so that the uh, youth minister doesn't have to. So I gave them an assignment for the end of school party. It was ice cream. And we've already established the Lord's choice is Bluebell. (laughs) So I gave them the the church Walmart card, sent three 20-year-olds on their way to Walmart with simple instructions. We need ice cream. It's to be Bluebell. I'd like you to pick three different flavors. Your choice, one of them needs to be vanilla. You pick two others, and altogether, estimating how many... Students we might have had on that Wednesday night, I told them, we're going to need 10 gallons of ice cream. So they left. They went on their way. We were expecting a big group. Nothing's worse than serving ice cream and running out. You can imagine how surprised I was when they came back. It was Blue Bell. They had chosen three flavors. And there was twice as much as I'd asked for. Well, I should say there was exactly the amount that I asked for. You see, I don't know about you, but my whole life I've been saying it wrong. And that was the day that I learned that a carton of bluebell is, as you all nodding your heads know, half a gallon. In my head, I just kind of always called it a, a, a thing, a bluebell, you know, a carton, a gallon, or whatever it is. That one of the, Ten of those is what I meant. So they came back with 10 gallons, which is 20 of those. And would you believe it? We didn't have any ice cream left over that night. It all somehow (laughs) still disappeared. I was saying it wrong. I needed uh, better information to convey to them. I was not accurate in what I asked for, and so I got back twice what I meant to say. The truth was, I was the one that was misinformed. I I misled them. I created... The misunderstanding. You know, as we think about misunderstanding in the middle section of Mark's gospel, we might wonder why Jesus doesn't just tell them. Just tell them what it is that they don't understand so that they can correct their error and, and all this misunderstanding can stop. If the disciples are simply, like I was, misinformed. If all they needed was some corrected content, then why doesn't Jesus just give them the right information so that the misunderstanding can be avoided in the future? And the reason, as we've discovered the last couple weeks, the reason is because Mark is teaching us through this gospel presentation, helping us to see that if these disciples were to see, were to really see the, the new thing that is bursting forth, that is emerging in the life of Jesus, they would suddenly have to count all of their knowledge as nothing. It would be the complete undoing of, of everything that they know. See, so the problem is that these disciples think they can see. Why would they call themselves blind? They don't feel sick. Why would they go looking for healing? And Jesus can't just correct their misinformation because what they need is not more information. What they need is complete transformation. It's the same thing that we need, that you need, that I need. It's the same reason that we open our Bibles each week, whether alone or together. Our goal, our primary aim is not just to open God's Word and to convey or to get more information. We open God's Word because we need transformation. And from the beginning of our study, we've noted the disciples understand no better than all the rest of the crowds in these texts. Jesus has to explain the parables to them at the beginning. They don't comprehend that story of loaves that we started with. And exasperated, Jesus says, do you not yet understand? And the challenge then is this. What must God do? What must Jesus do to undo or to transform or to heal these disciples? To heal me if I'm going to continue to follow Jesus? In his way. It's in Mark chapter 8 verse 32 that we meet our next misunderstanding in this text. You remember last week's Peter's grand confession turns out to get silenced and corrected by Jesus. He says, you are the Christ in verse 29. But he's warned to tell no one and Jesus teaches them about his suffering and rejection that's coming. Well, in verse 32, the story continues. It says he was stating the matter plainly. In other words, Jesus was not being confusing. He was saying things quite forwardly. And Peter took him aside, Jesus, and began to rebuke him. But turning around, verse 33 says, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And Jesus's halt here in the middle of Mark's gospel is a stop on the way. He has to deal with Peter's misunderstanding. Now, Why does Mark tell us that Jesus turns around to do this? It's not really clear. Jesus looks at the other disciples to voice Peter's rebuke. Now maybe it was because Peter was the minority opinion and he turns to everybody else to tell them what he's correcting Peter for. It's probably more likely that Peter speaks up on behalf of what everybody else was thinking. Peter's supposed to be following Jesus on the way, and he can't escape the human longings that tell him that this just can't be right. Jesus teaches about suffering and rejection, and Peter pulls him aside to say, surely this is not the way. You must be mistaken. He wants Jesus to do things his way. But Jesus didn't choose Peter to be the drum major in Jesus' band. And Peter can't follow Jesus if he keeps moving out in front of him, pulling him aside to correct him. He needs to get back in line and let the master lead follow after him. That, after all, was Jesus' very first call to Peter back at the beginning of the gospel, follow me. And Walter Wink says that Jesus' response to Peter here is the most violent statement in the entire Bible. Jesus turns around, we're told, looks at all the other disciples and says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. The scene reminds us that you can be simultaneously right, and yet so wrong. Peter makes that stunning confession, and Jesus, just as stunningly here, rebukes him. Peter does not yet understand what he should by now, that this Messiah is destined to die at the hands of God's enemies. And despite the fact that Peter had just gotten Jesus' title correct, you are the Christ, He learns really quickly that that's only the first step in following Jesus on the way. In fact, Jesus understands Peter's words not only to voice the concerns of Peter and the concerns of the rest of the group that he turns to to rebuke him, Jesus attributes these words directly to Satan himself. This, Jesus recognizes, is the work of the enemy. You At the very beginning of the gospel, when we first encountered Jesus, we find him at his baptism, hearing from God that he is God's beloved son. And then immediately after that, Jesus faces his greatest temptation. Satan himself takes him into the wilderness and tempts him. And now, with Peter, he hears a similar announcement. You are the Christ. You're the son of God, he's basically saying. And again, immediately following that truth, The work of Satan tries to lead him astray. Jesus knows that this great temptation is nothing to be toyed with. He takes seriously the task that he's committed to. He takes seriously the temptation that Peter hangs out in front of him. Do this some other way. He says, get behind me, Satan. You know, when Peter hears that he's taken aback, it it throws him for a loop. Nothing in all of Peter's religious background had prepared him to foresee what it is that Jesus keeps predicting, that he will suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. It turns out that Peter and we are not just misinformed. Peter doesn't just need more information about what's going to happen. He needs something more. Because the truth about Peter is the same truth about all of us. We're not just lacking information. We're not just misinformed. We're also preformed. And we're, to put it more strongly, deformed. The image of God in us is broken and in need of repair. We are the blind who need sight. We are the sick who need healing. The problem's not just that we've not gathered all the facts, or that we're calling half a gallon a gallon, and if someone would just correct us, we would get it right. The truth is that we have been steeped, have been taught, are learning in a culture that runs against the kingdom of God. Some scientists not too long ago set about to try and prove this. What, what is it? What effect? Does our cultural background, our knowledge, what we know, have on what it is that we see? You see, according to biblical anthropology, all of us are not just empty vessels that need to be filled with information. We're already filled. We've been shaped by all of our experiences, by all of our life, by our own self-interests. All of those things have conditioned us to a certain kind of way of seeing and hearing and reacting. That's why the gospel is so hard so easy to know and so hard to live out. So some analysts took uh, experimental subjects and they put on them what's called a stereopticon. It is a device that allows uh, both eyes to be separated so that a different image can be seen by each eye. In other words, you can kind of see two things at once. And you can try this by putting up two pictures, you know as well as I do, it's hard to focus on both. You really End up having to choose one, but by putting on the stereopticon, they're capable of flashing two different pictures simultaneously, one to each eye, and then they asked the participants to report which picture they saw. One after another, the participants, when the different pictures were shown to each eye, reported seeing only the picture familiar to their cultural conditioning. In other words, when a picture of a baseball player was flashed to one eye and a bullfighter to the other, one's cultural experience determined which image you saw. People from North America reported seeing a baseball player. People from uh, Spain reported seeing a bullfighter. Subjects were shown a, a red six of spades, for example, and despite being a little bit uncomfortable with it, they would report it as being a six of spades, even though it wasn't the same as they'd always saw. The point was, and what was uncovered in that study, was that we tend to see what we're trained to see, not necessarily what's there. And to put it in biblical terms, Peter has discovered that the principalities and powers of this world hold people in their grasp. We are not empty vessels that simply need more information, but we have been conditioned to do one thing while the kingdom of God comes and presents us with something else. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it this way, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We don't simply lack information. We need to be transformed and renewed and, and our eyes open to see what it is about Jesus that we misunderstand. And Mark has written this gospel to show us that the disciples, the very first followers of Jesus, are incapable of understanding and that no amount of learning is going to correct this. They are blind and they need to be healed. Faith from Mark in this gospel is not the opposite of doubt. It's blindness that needs to be healed. Sight restored transformation, a cure for our misunderstanding of what life is and who God is. It's bad enough that Jesus has to deal with his critics throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees or uh, the political opponents that come, those bitter rivals who want to challenge him, but he also has to carry the burden of his closest supporters, the wishful fantasies of the disciples that want to redirect his mission. And in this passage, it brings forth the haunting truth that the work of Satan comes in both forms. Those who overtly and intentionally wish to oppose Jesus and even those who wish to follow him as they misunderstand where it is that he's going. In other words, we can't put Jesus into our own categories, and use him for what we wish, co-opt his mission and make it a part of ours and expect ourselves to be found following him on the way. He's the Messiah that God sent to suffer and to save his people through death and resurrection. The only mission he has is to stay faithful to the God who sent him. Here, Peter pulls Jesus aside and tempts him with another offer. And Jesus has to resist the pressure to conform not just to the expectations of his opponents. He must also fend off the wishful thinking of his closest friends. And they're all influenced by the popular expectations of what a Messiah is supposed to do. And they would rather Jesus be something like that. It happens in our day too that well-meaning Christians come to be a part of a culture that teaches them faith, that grounds them in moral thinking, and they begin to think that maybe Jesus wants to come along for the ride that we're all on. You can see it on every corner of the world that people take who Jesus is and try to fit it into their lives rather than taking their lives and shaping it and transforming it into the kingdom that Jesus brings. The disciples, no doubt, just like us, probably would have preferred that Jesus was like the Messiah they had imagined. I imagine some of them expected somebody who would be like Solomon. Have you read about the spiritual miracles and exorcisms that he performed? They longed for Jesus to be more like Solomon. People in our day would probably have liked Jesus more had he been more like Solomon too. They had imagined a Messiah like Moses, who showed up and provided by miracle bread in the desert, and they would have been pleased if the Messiah did just that. They would have loved a Messiah like Joshua, who would lead in conquest and recapture the promised land from all of the pagans. Surely the Messiah who comes will be like that. All of us would line up to follow Joshua. They imagined someone like David. Even the scriptures said he would be like David. He had a triumphant kingdom, and all of Israel's enemies served as footstools. They would have loved a Messiah like David, and we would line up for one too. And the temptation for Jesus to meet our expectations and the hopes of this little band of followers must have been enormous. But turn after turn, Jesus looks them in the eye and says, Get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus won't be David or Joshua, or Moses, or Solomon. And one of the hardest parts of following Jesus is believing that what Jesus chose to be is better than all of those. And so Jesus, in his next sayings, for, lays out for Peter and for every disciple who followed him, what following Jesus requires And what kind of savior he will be. Three demands that shape the life of believers. He summoned the crowd, we're told in verse 34, with his disciples. And he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Three demands Jesus lays before them. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. See, first Jesus insists that if disciples want to follow him, it's going to start with self-denial. They don't have to to do something to themselves, but they do have to deny themselves and all of their self-promoting ambitions. You see, it turns out that discipleship is not a part-time volunteer work that you sign up for as a kind of extracurricular activity. God doesn't want a minor role in our lives. He requires a controlling place, and those who deny themselves, like Jesus speaks of here, are those who have learned to say, not my will, but yours be done. Today, in in many Christian traditions, and perhaps in your life, uh, marks the beginning of the season of Lent. Now, self-denial is at the center of that season in most traditions, the idea that you give up certain things for a season leading up to the celebration of Easter. And of course, that spiritual practice uh, can be a wonderful one. If practiced in the short term but Jesus's command here seems to be hitting at something even more that self-denial can't be a season of the year it's an attitude one that creates a daily submission of our will to God's that those who deny themselves say no to self and say yes to God and Dietrich Bonhoeffer defines self-denial like this He says to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way. Keep close to him. The second demand Jesus places on us is to take up your cross. Jesus demands that all disciples take up their cross. It's vivid imagery that, that would have sounded especially strange to those who hear it before Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection sort of make sense of that imagery for them. Public executions were a prominent feature of life, the worst of extreme tortures. The Romans would have made uh, condemned people carry a beam of the cross to the place of execution where they fixed it to the execution stake. Jesus expects people who follow him to join the ranks of people who know where they're headed, who have no choice to turn back, who are ready to deny themselves even to the point of giving up their lives. Now, there's no soft selling this level of commitment we can try to use more flowery language to describe what it means to take up a cross but at the end of the day to take up a cross is to join and to learn from the school of suffering it reminds us that jesus doesn't ask us to make small adjustments to our lives no one is asked to try on a cross for size to see if it fits he requires a complete overhaul of all our behavior He calls us to take up and to carry a cross. Albert Camus writes a novel called uh, The Stranger. In That Stranger, one of the characters is a priest who's trying to convince an unbeliever about the faith. In the middle of the book, the, the priest pulls open a drawer in the midst of trying to convince this unbeliever. He takes out a silver crucifix. And he holds it up at him and waves it around while he's trying to reinforce his argument about believing in the faith. You get the idea in the book that the priest is more interested in waving the cross than carrying it. But, you know, Jesus doesn't once tell us to take up our cross and to wave it at others. He's convinced that bearing it will do all the work necessary. Thomas Akempis once wrote in his famous book, The Imitation of Christ, that Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, but few who long for distress. There are plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share in his fast, Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as the drinking of the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, few that follow him to the cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or become deeply distressed. Those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, bless him in time of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation. There are many who love his heavenly kingdom, he says, but few who carry his cross. Jesus says we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Follow him in the way that he's chosen. Follow him where he leads. Get in line behind him and stay close. You see, those who risk their lives even to the point of death rest in the complete security of God. Those who devote themselves to gaining the whole world will find only that. Emptiness. You see, for Jesus, the call is to save your life by losing it. Now, for some, this means giving up their own desires. For some, it means shaping their choices at work. For others, it's a sacrifice in their family. But for all of them, it means turning to follow the one who leads the way. And David lodge's novel therapy now, the main character is a, therap- uh, is a therapist who's meeting with clients and the therapist asks the client sitting with him to make a list of all the good things about his life in one column and all the bad things about his life in another now, surprisingly under the good column the character starts to write uh, everything that's good His list is this, professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched into adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. Under the bad column, he wrote just one thing, feel unhappy most of the time. The truth is, happiness is not the goal. That's not why Jesus says we ought to do all of these things. But what the story does reveal is that if we follow only the ways of the world and gain everything that it has to offer, at the end, it remains empty. Or in Jesus' words, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's where our understanding of the Messiah begins. Let's pray together. Father, in many moments we would desire... For our Savior to be something He's not. To give us what we think we need or to go in the direction we would have Him go. But you find us in your word and in our lives as a Christ of the cross, as a Messiah of suffering, as one who leads the way and shows us that you offer a better life and that those who will leave the life of this world behind will find the life of grace, the life of God, the life that lasts forever. We pray that as people of God in this place, you would help us to embody your life and your truth in this world, that all might come to know you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.